Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Dead by Tomorrow. We have a special interview today with Michael Miller, the man with the big deck, as we have heard, the myth and the legend. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to see how your home renovation's going. Uh, I know we've been talking about that a lot, so looking forward to pictures there. What have you been up to? Hey, yeah, thank you so much for letting me be able to come on this podcast and share a little bit. So I am currently doing a little bit remodeling of my house. I am building a deck in the backyard. And so it is it is coming along nicely. I think I should be able to finish it by the end of this week. We shall see. But it it is coming coming along pretty well. So I'm I'm, I'm hoping to to get that done and out of the way and move on to the next project. But yeah, I I am just recently moved to, to Dallas with my wife and my one-year-old son. So I used to live in California just a couple of years ago and just bought a house here in Dallas during COVID and was able to let my wife, Amy, keep her job, move down here to Dallas and buy a home and just get everything set up. So I am actually currently looking for a job right now. And so that's kind of what, between looking for a job and doing some house renovations, that's currently what's taking up some of my time. Dude, that will take up a lot of your time. Like it is buying a house by itself is unfairly time consuming. Like it's and Daniel knows too. Daniel, you just bought a house 2020? 2020. Yeah. And instead of building a deck, we removed about half of one because the entire backyard was just one gigantic wooden deck. <laughs> you men and your decks. I don't have a deck, so I don't have any of these building or removing issues. I have a massive backyard with a tree that I'm going to have to figure out what to do with. But it is a weird process buying a house. Like you would think, hey, I've got this money. Uh, There's a house I want. I would like to buy it. You can make that decision in a couple of hours and it still will take you months to purchase a house. Yeah, I definitely agree. I was actually very fortunate that I went house hunting in, in Dallas just over the course of one day end up looking at 10 different homes and found the one that we wanted the most and put in an application and then found out just within a couple of days that the seller of the home chose chose me and, and Amy to to buy this home. And so just after looking once, I ended up getting the, the house we, we absolutely wanted and we didn't run into really too much trouble going through the the whole application for a home loan to, to be able to fully purchase the home. But we got very fortunate. That's awesome. Way to go. So normally we try and kind of bounce this around between who who knows who and who's got good stuff. And so I think of the three of us, you and Daniel, me and you versus you and Daniel. Daniel's known you a lot more closely and longer. So I'm going to let Daniel decide where we want to take this. For me, whenever Michael and Amy came and started house hunting, we were pretty excited about it. And we definitely lobbied for a particular neighborhood. And we're excited for that to work out because the the house that y'all ended up in is about five minutes away from where we live right now. It just kind of plays into this rich history of Michael and I being in close proximity. It's just been something that's been really important for the past, I don't know how many years at this point, but to give some history, because Andrew, I I think saying Michael and I maybe are a little bit closer is underselling it a little bit. I'm a master of understatement. All of my friends say so. (laughs) So we're basically neighbors now, which I'm excited. It's like the prodigal roommate returning from California, because before that, Michael, you guys lived in a duplex that was probably about five minutes from a duplex that Hillary and I lived in. And then before that, we both lived at the village apartment complex in buildings that were almost adjacent to each other. And then before that, Michael, you and I were roommates in a house in Carrollton and an apartment in Duncanville, which we'll certainly get into that a little bit more. And then went to Texas A&M. We're we're friends back then. Both went to Emerald High, both went to Crockett. So that is quite a history of proximity. And we still we still like each other. Blink twice if he's holding you hostage, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we still like each other. So it's very good. I did. Yeah, I left for a couple of years and had fun in California, but ultimately wanted to, to come back and, and kind of plant my roots here in Dallas. So excited to be back. But Daniel, a couple other things as we 
We both found our wives and got married within two months of each other. There's a there's a few other things where we've we've just been very very close and very in similar stages of life for the past ten years at least. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I tried to get Andrew on board, but I don't know. Nobody would take you or something. I don't, I don't know what the holdup was. <laughs> Couldn't know. leave Amarillo. I'm, there were a lot of excuses. There's a lot of excuses, and uh, but it really does come down to, you know, no one would take me. So I just, I couldn't hop on the train solo. <laughs> All right, Michael, we talked a little bit about what you do. You're currently job hunting, so there's not a necessarily a profession that you claim to, but you've had a lot of professions we covered where you live in Dallas and we kind of covered the the path crossing. So let's roll it back to profession to get us traditionally started, I guess you could say, and then we'll jump off from there. So kind of where have you been and what have you done? Because that was part of what we wanted to bring you on for was you have you've gone through a lot of hardship, you've had a lot of jobs, and as anybody knows that's had more than one job, it's hard to transition most of the time unless you're some superstar and I'm not one of those people. So what do you got for us on that job front? What have you done? Where are you going? Sure. So, Andrew, another understatement is having a lot of jobs. Uh, I was actually thinking about this before hopping on. In the past 10 years, I've held 12 different job titles, <laughs> more than one per year job title. To, to correspond with that, I was looking at how many different places I've lived for at least a couple of months. And I've lived at 12 different places for at least a couple of months in the past 10 years as well. So, I have moved all over the place, all over the country. I've lived in Texas and Colorado and California. I've worked several different jobs all the way from um, working as a barista at Starbucks to running an internship program for a nonprofit, Compassion International. Then I kind of worked my way into the healthcare world, and specifically the, the health insurance world, where another connection with Daniel, we actually worked at the same company as well. Was that a blink? I did blink twice just then. <laughs> but no, it's it's kind of the the way that my, my path has taken. And, and really, a lot of the, the help in the credit goes to Daniel for helping kind of jumpstart part of the health insurance career for me. Um, he had already been working at this company called Compass Professional Health Services. Uh, when we were roommates, I had just moved into the new location um, in, near Dallas and, and was looking for another role. And, and Daniel offered um, up a role at his, his company that he knew was uh, interviewing. And so I interviewed, got the job and kind of set my trajectory for the healthcare world. And I've actually been in that for the past four or five years. And so it's, it's been with a couple different companies with Compass. And then when I went out to California, there's a large nonprofit healthcare company called Kaiser Permanente. So I worked with them for a couple of years. But ultimately, with COVID happening, my wife and I knew that we wanted to move back to Dallas near family, near friends. And we were able to keep her job and work, let her work remote, uh, which was a huge blessing. Unfortunately, I did have to give up my job in order to move back to Dallas, well, which is actually a big part of my story is giving up roles in order for my family to really move forward and, and see a lot of success. I've had to sacrifice a few of my roles for that that movement forward, but it's all been so good and it's all been completely worth it and, and for the betterment of my family. Uh, so I did give up my, my job in California, moved to Dallas, which has kind of set me up for the, the looking for a new position out here now. Yeah. And I think when somebody says that there can sort of be this question of were we, were you really sacrificing roles or not? And I can attest to that's 100% true. Whenever you left compass to go out to California. It wasn't like a, oh, Michael, don't leave. We're so sad to see you go. And in, in reality, we're like, oh, thank goodness. We finally got rid of that guy. No, <laughs> the, the reality is I felt like you were somebody that really had the potential to move up into a management role. Um, and I was not the only one that felt that. Obviously, I'm biased, but I was not the only one that felt that. And so when you say making a sacrifice of your own career, it's it's truly sacrificing the opportunity to have moved up and grown and developed in a career so that like you're saying, you know, your wife can pursue a, a dream kind of once in a lifetime opportunity and you guys get to experience being in a different place. And that's something that in a world where career advancement and this kind of status and money is so highly sought after. I think that's a really 
admirable move to make and even more so as a man because i think that there's still to this day kind of this stereotype that you know as as a man like i'm proud and i want to have this great career and and it can be you know humbling to say you know what i'm going to set that aside for the sake of my family and so i just want to bring a, an outside perspective to affirm that that really is 100% true. Yeah, thank you. No, I, I completely understand or completely agree with the fact that it is hard be, being the man of, of the family. You, you kind of have heard your whole life that you need to be the breadwinner. You need to be the one who's successful at your job, your career, and, and can provide for your family that way. And that's great. That's great advice. But one thing people don't don't think about as well is, is providing for your family in a way that's going to set the whole family unit up to really, really be taken care of. And so that can be through working your way up the ladder, making money, providing for your family financially. It's That's good. And that's, that's something that you should pursue if given the opportunity. But for my my particular family, it kind of, it kind of reversed roles a little bit. And it allowed me to take a step back and just see that okay, I need to set aside my career advances for the time being in order to have my spouse, my wife pursue hers and, and really kind of take a step up in, in her career path before I can do that with mine. And it's hard to do that because I know my, my wife right now is the breadwinner. And just inherently, I kind of want to be the one who, who makes the most money, who wants to be the provider for the family. But when I take, but like I said, when I take a step back, I realized that by sacrificing my career advancement right now, which I intend to continue that and pursue it now that we've moved to Dallas, kind of set our roots here, but by, by sacrificing it to let her move up, that is really the thing that's going to set my family up for success, set my family up to be provided for. If the money comes from the wife, then I'm able to do different roles that may not be typical. So I have been daddy daycare at my house for probably the past year with Peter growing up. I got to really, really experience so much of his upbringing. I was there 24-7 for him for most of his first year and, and a lot of fathers, a lot of men don't get that experience. It can seem like it was a really bad move that I gave up my job. But in reality, it's a huge blessing. I got a chance to spend the, the first year with my son that a lot of people don't get. So I'm very thankful for that. But he, we did get him into a daycare recently. So I am kind of jumping back into that career field now. Hopefully that, that works out pretty quickly for me. But you're right, Daniel. It, it is hard to, to not be the one making the most money right now because that's what you've heard your whole life. But in reality, it is a sacrifice that I am happy to make for the betterment of my family. That's so cool because it is, that requires a certain level of confidence. We live in a, I don't like the word toxic necessarily, but there's definitely a lot of cultural expectations and being able to not just do that, but openly be like, yes, this, this is what I'm doing. I am staying at home with my child while my wife, my wife goes to work. I'm making these choices. That is a level of confidence that a lot of guys don't have. Like that would be hard for me. It is hard for me to admit I'm doing something that other people wouldn't think is manly. If I'm doing something that is considered soft or whatever, it's really hard for me to say it, even if I enjoy it. You know, I got a pedicure, the, you know, a couple of times and I have to play it off as a joke. I can't admit that I actually liked the pedicure. You know, it's like, oh yeah, this, I did this dumb thing. Like, ha ha ha. It was nice guys. I liked it. So that's really cool, Michael. I'm, I'm impressed with it. And you, you know, you're not a guy who's needing that validation from society, which is such a healthy way to live. So that's cool, man. I'm going to throw two at you and you decide how to deal with the two questions in whatever way you want. So first, how do you deal with the job hopping? Do you have any special ways you're like, hey, this is this is how I keep changing careers. I'm constantly updating resumes. What's your special secret to consistently finding new positions despite moving and all the different career changes? And then on top of that, how do you maintain the resilience that goes with the rejection and the the mental battery that comes from facing down stigmas from people that might not know you as well, or all the different things that come along with being unemployed and or staying at home with your kid? Sure. So for the first question, there is no secret. I <laughs> have been trying to find the secret sauce to help me get a, a new job and move forward. Really, it comes down to, to hard work. And so it's 
it's one of those things where if you make trying to find a job, your full-time job, then it eventually will come. Right now, the times are hard. I get that. I'm, I'm feeling that as well, that there's a lot of people who have lost jobs. And then I, I had, I gave up my, my job in order to, to make the move to Dallas. And so trying to find a new job when, when all the jobs are kind of disappearing and a lot of people are being let go, uh, it's, it's more difficult because now I'm kind of competing with a lot of other people who, who have lost their, their positions as well. And so right now it's, it's more tough than it has been in the past, but I, I really do chalk it up to just the quote unquote, the secret sauce is making looking for a job, your full-time job. When you do that, then it's more more likely to come, it's going to come a little bit quicker rather than if you just do it in an hour a day and you spend time doing other things. And so it's, for me, it's, there, there have been some gaps whenever I am on full-time daddy daycare mode. I'm, my son's home and I'm watching him full-time. As soon as he became mobile, I, I am now chasing him around the home and chasing him around the house. And so it's hard to find that time to apply for positions. But now that he's in daycare, I've, I've kind of re-centered and refocused my efforts towards applying for job position full-time. So I've had a few interviews recently, and I think a lot of that has come from putting that time in, putting that dedicated work into looking for a position. So I think secret sauce, as much as you may not want to hear it, it is just good old-fashioned hard work. There is no cutting corners when it comes to finding a job. No, that's exactly what I like to hear. I like to hear that you can get something through hard work. I hate it whenever that option doesn't work because that's what I believe in. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I wish there was an easy way. I wish it wasn't hard work. Nah, that's no fun. <laughs> I know. At the same time, if you put in the hard work and someone else doesn't, that, that elevates your chances of getting that job. Very rewarding. It is. It's very rewarding. And the second second one is kind of, I think your question was, what's how do I, am I resilient against the stigma of not having a job? And I just have this huge propensity to have positivity just throughout my day, throughout my life, and throughout my career. For some reason, I always tend to see the silver lining in every situation. And it can be really, really good in times of trying to find a job. And <laughs> the stigma of the world is, Michael, why don't you have a job? You need to you know, get this. You need to provide for your family. And I, I'll see that silver lining of being able to take care of my son and, and spend more time going through the motion, all the, the paperwork of buying a home. So I, I see those silver linings by just staying positive. But at the same time, it can get to a point where it does annoy other people. And you are welcome to ask my wife this at any time. But sometimes where I need to be frustrated, I need to be upset with something because that's the natural human response. I will find the the hidden silver lining that probably isn't there that I made up in my mind and try and twist something to make it to make it positive. So there's I think 95% of it there is so much good with maintaining positivity in the face of adversity, but you can't take it a little bit too far. And that's something I've had to learn over the years is to kind of taper it down whenever there's a situation where it is correct to grieve, it is correct to to be sad or be disheartened about something that might have happened. And and that's the appropriate response. But for me, I think it's the positivity factor. So now I naturally have to ask, do you know anything about as far as Enneagram types or Myers-Briggs? Is that a personality trait that others would share? I, yeah, it probably is. I recently took the Enneagram. Let's see, I was a number nine, which is the peacemaker. And essentially, from the, the research I've, I've done on looking at the nine, and, and you are more than welcome to yeah, give a little bit more input into this. But basically, it's saying nines are the ones who are accepting and kind of go with the flow. And that's very much my personality, as you can see with me moving 12 times in 10 years, 12 positions in 10 years, very go with the flow, just wherever the situation arises. I'm happy to just adapt and be flexible and go with that current at the time. My wife is a nine. So we've often joked that Hillary and Michael are kind of the same person and Amy and I are kind of the same person, which is why as couples, we get along well. It's good, though, to have to have that mindset. And I think, Michael, what you do a good job of is identifying where it is beneficial and where it serves you, but also times when, you know, maybe 
like you said, it can be frustrating to others or where maybe that's sort of not the best approach. And I, I feel like that's the big benefit I see in things like personality tests is it can just help you to self-identify something that maybe you should have already known, but you were struggling to put into words. So for any for any nines out there, take some inspiration by Michael and the fact that he has moved and has done these different jobs because for a nine, your your biggest vice is sloth. And it can be very easy to just kind of hang out, to chill out. But Michael, as a nine, has overcome that by making applying a full-time job and, and just being very intentional about that. So you're you're not doomed to what your personality tests say about you. I've already forgotten what I was on the Enneagram. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're three. You're three. Oh, Andrew, okay. Same as me. <laughs> that makes that just I, follow whatever you do. Sure. And I've, I have seen, or when I was reading about being a nine, the peacemaker, nines are the least likely to look at personality tests, <laughs> which is very <laughs> fitting because I looked at my personality tests earlier today. And so that's how I know what the nine is. <laughs> you're like, dang it. Daniel's going to ask me about that dang Enneagram thing. And I need to have an answer. <laughs> I mean, I see the benefit in it. There's there's definitely a lot of good that you can see from learning more about your personality and finding out what vices you may have and how to overcome that. Uh, But I think the same thing about personalities, these personality tests, I think they give you your strengths as well. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but one of my strengths is actually maximizer. So if I see something that's already there, if I see something good, I, I want to progress it. I wanted to make it great. Um, so even just kind of looking at these personality tests, a lot of times you read who you are, you're like, yeah, that, that's me for the most part. And you'll see kind of what your struggles might be or your vices. And so you can you can look at it and you can see, okay, this is what I may struggle with. Okay, I need to try and fix it in this manner here and there. Um, but one thing that you may not realize is that these personality tests also give you your strengths and how you're able to really put a lot of effort into your strengths to be the best at the skills that you particularly have. So if you think about work, a lot of times the best employees, especially if it's a specialized role, they're not the employees who spend their whole life trying to make their low skills, their weak skills, just average, trying to bring up their weaknesses rather than they know what their strengths are. They focus, hone in on those strengths and make them above the rest, above everyone else. So you're really able to hone in on what makes you great and make that even better to help progress you, whether it be your career, whether it be ways you interact with other people. But that's that's kind of what I found from that. Looking at Enneagram, Enneagram test is what are my strengths and how, how am I able to see what my personality strengths are and progress those further? Dude, I absolutely love that. You talked a lot about strengths there, Michael. Have you uh, ever heard of a program called Strengths Finder? I have. Yes, I've taken a few times. That's where that maximizer came from. <laughs> so that sounds a lot like Strengths Quest. So I'm, I'm sure it's the same thing, but I think I picked up something along the same lines on that. But by taking your strengths and then improving your strengths, that is so much better for you in terms of and this sounds robotic, but what you produce, because in the end, you're either going to get paid money on what you're producing or like what comes back to you in life, at least in a monetary sense, usually revolves around what you're being really good at. And if you're mediocre at a whole lot of stuff, you don't fit into any box. Like you're just at that point, you're a warm body. And so instead of bringing up your weaknesses, that's going to take a lot more effort to get them to where everybody else is. You can take your strengths that are already above average and you really lean into that. And now you're a, you're a performer. You are a superstar at something and you're, you're a lot more desirable to everybody. You know, if you're looking at an employer, you're going to be a lot more desirable to an employer if you are a superstar in a single strength and being really good at a bunch of stuff or decent at a bunch of stuff. The same goes to your wife. Like if you're really, really good at, let's say, fathering the child or taking care of the home, that's going to be a lot more desirable to a woman than if you are mediocre at your job and mediocre at keeping up the house and, you know, mediocre at everything. So it it goes across the board. You could slot in whatever situation you want. And it's the person who's the best at something or, you know, is leaning into their strengths is going to be the most interesting, the most desirable aspect of that group of people in this imaginary scenario. I just hope that somebody from this podcast takes the advice and says, you know what, on my next date, I'm going to open with, I'm really good at fathering the child. You should date me. <laughs> I hope Dirty Curdy's listening. Uh, I like how that's, uh, my strength is fathering children. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I'm not great at words, which is not good as someone who likes to write. Right. I don't speak well, but I father children great. 
<laughs> so, Andrew, one thing you're saying, I, I kind of was thinking about this, and I'd love to, to hear what y'all think as well. But I think focusing and honing in on your strengths is really, really great for your job and your career. But kind of think about it more. You, you definitely want to see what your weaknesses are and, and kind of focus a little bit on those as well when it comes to your family and your relationships. You can, you can focus on your strengths, and that will really help in your family to a high extent, probably. But you definitely don't want to leave just some of your traits out in the dust that may be your weaknesses when it comes to uh, your marriage or, or raising raising a child. Uh, so I think it is worth focusing a little bit on those vices for, for family. Maybe not so much for work. You may need to a little bit, but for family, I think it's worth it. No, I can't disagree. And honestly, I would continue <laughs> it with work too. Like you can't go in and be like, hey, I'm the best programmer ever. And then they're like, hey, can you give us a report on what you've been up to? And you're like, I don't know what reports are. Like you, you have to meet some baseline standards. But the mm-hmm. difference between someone who can't do the laundry and someone who forgets about the washer or doesn't iron the clothes right, or this is a more real life example, folding clothes or loading a dishwasher is two different things that I've seen couples get a little feisty about. And being able to load the dishwasher is one thing, but like maybe you don't do it to their standard. Okay, cool. Like you're mediocre at dishwashers, but like not understanding how to work a dishwasher, like obviously you need to raise your skills up. Yeah. I think for me in both scenarios, it sort of comes down to what expectations are. And so again, to your programmer example, Andrew, if you are an amazing programmer and you never really need to give a report, like that's not a part of your role. Like you never need to touch PowerPoint. At that point, it doesn't, even if you're super weak at it, it doesn't do you a lot of good to invest in that weakness. And so similar in in like a relationship, if you are just not good at sort of picking up after yourself, but your spouse either doesn't really care or they, for whatever reason, they just love cleaning up clutter (laughs) and it doesn't bother them, then that's not as important to focus on in a weakness. Now, obviously, like for me as a as a three and an achiever, I, I just feel like you want to be good at everything. But that's my exactly. Own I, I um, have that issue too. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I do think when it comes to weaknesses, it's about seeing where you're being limited because of the weakness and getting it up to an acceptable standard or finding a way to to offload that thing where you don't have to do as much of something that you're not good at. That's something I ask those on my team fairly often is, hey, what are the things that you're either just not good at or they're super draining? Like maybe you're good at it, but I see it as a weakness if every time you do it, you just want to quit your job. And so I'll ask that question and then we'll try to have a conversation about, okay, how can you do less of that thing? And I think that's an important focus to have when it comes to weaknesses, either getting it to a point where you're decent at it or figuring out a way where you don't have to do it. See, he cheated, Michael. He he went after we both talked about it. And so he had all that time to come up with a much better way to say it and think it out. So you know what? We're, we're just going to cut it. We're just we're not going to have that in the episode. We'll pretend it was just you and I talking. <laughs> no, that was great, Daniel. That's the way to put it. <laughs> Michael, since you've worked at a lot of different jobs, I'm curious, have there been any particular characteristics, traits, skills that you feel like have applied across nearly any career you've been in? Yeah, that's a great question. The one that comes to mind immediately is how you interact with coworkers. And so it's not even a particular work-related skill and you know, maybe knowing software, how, how to handle software, how to work on customer service. But I think it really comes down to how you interact with your coworkers. And that's something I've, I've seen across the board. The further you get in a career or, or in, the, in the different positions that you may have, you'll, you'll see there's those people you enjoy interacting with, there's those you may not enjoy interacting with. And if you are an individual who takes time out of their day to actually interact with others, ask them questions, try and do that work on active listening, just really social skills within your work, I find that the work that you do is more fulfilling because you have friends that you interact with. You have coworkers that you you enjoy talking to and, and they enjoy talking to you as well. Because you'll, you'll, you'll see individuals who may want to progress and move up the ladder. That's great. Power to you. Go for it. But some of these individuals may 
want to undercut those around them in order to make themselves appear better or to get work their way up that ladder. And when you see that, you see that they're, the way that they're viewed within the office is not favorable. People don't like interacting with them, don't like working with them because they they were a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more ruthless in their pursuit of you know advancement. And it works out for them sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. But what I've learned is when you are able to communicate well and be sociable to everybody that you work with, there really is very little to no downside to that. You can still work hard and have that career mentality or that achievement mentality to to work your way up the ladder, to to do the best that you can, to get a bonus, to be able to be the best at your position. But that's great. But having that interaction with those around you and being nice, being sociable, there really is no negative to that. And it makes your job more enjoyable, which makes your life more enjoyable. You don't think about work as much when you go home, or if you do, it's it's more pleasant thoughts than if you're completely stressed and then nobody likes you. So I think that's kind of the, the skill that I think crosses all the different boundaries is how you interact um, with your coworkers. Have you ever seen A Beautiful Mind? I promise this isn't a tangent. I don't remember the specifics. Gotcha. So what you were talking about reminded me a lot of that movie. And the premise of the movie, you know, there's this genius who kind of struggles a little bit with social interactions, but he's able to apply mathematics to in the movie. It's actually to to dating, interestingly enough. And he comes up with what is called the Nash equilibrium. So it's sort of like the opposite of a zero sum game. It's saying we have a tendency to sort of compete with each other. And in, in the movie, the example is there's a really, really pretty girl and all of the eligible bachelors are competing and undercutting each other to try to get her attention. And in reality, what it does is it just makes all of them look like terrible options and nobody gets her. But instead, if you look and say, okay, there are five really pretty girls, one may be the prettiest, and there are five of us, we don't have to undercut each other. And then we all win because we all get to date somebody. So that is interesting. You brought that up. So I haven't seen A Beautiful Mind, which apparently I need to watch, but I 100% agree with Michael on this. And I don't know if we've talked about this before on here. I feel like we probably would have. But at the beginning of every year, I usually kind of set like a theme for the year. I'll pick like a phrase that I really like and I'll try and use that almost like a a motto or mantra uh, for the year. And so 2021 was the rising tide lifts all boats. That's essentially what it is. It's like, hey, by lifting everybody up, being the tide, everybody's boat goes up. It's not, there's not a competition to see whose boat goes the highest. And it's an imperfect metaphor, but it is, it's what Michael's talking about, what the beautiful mind thing is. There's too much zero sum game, uh, prisoner's dilemma kind of stuff where people are, it'd be a lot better if you cooperate and you work together than thinking everybody's making a dollar and that's somehow coming out of your pocket. Yeah. And Andrew, I think a, a great tangent to that or a great segue from that is, Kind of going back to when I was talking about having to sacrifice, you know, my mm-hmm. career for my family's growth. I think it's, it relates to that in a, in a similar sense where one thing that really gives me life is whenever I can see those around me succeed. And so um, I've had roles where I've supervised a few people. And if I'm able to see them do well at their job or get a promotion themselves, it gives me life. I, I thrive on that. I love to see others succeed. And a lot of times, in order to do that, it does require that sacrificing. And there's a concept that I love called sacrificial leadership. And I'm, I'm a Christian, and, and I believe that a perfect example and what we're called to do is be a sacrificial leader. And the perfect example of that is Jesus Christ. And so I have seen or I, I have found that to be true when it comes to my family and having to be that sacrificial leader of my career path right now in order for my family to really kind of see that success. But essentially, that sacrificial leadership is really just the self-sacrificing for the greater good. It can be used with work, it can be used with family, it can be used with friends. But before getting on here, there is a verse uh, in the Bible that I wanted to read that, that really kind of hones in on how Jesus was the example, and that's what we're called to be as well. But it's, it's Mark 10, 42 through 45. And it basically says that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. 
Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man, which is Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that's saying that Jesus came to not be served, but to serve others. And he is the Lord. And so that's kind of our prime example, or that's my prime example when it comes to that sacrificial leadership, which I feel like I've been able to do to an extent for my family. And I just feel like it's a leadership quality that is overlooked a lot of times and may not be what the society and culture right now looks at and views as, as really kind of a priority. But looking at Jesus's example, I feel like it very much is a priority and and something I'm I just love getting a chance to be the example of. Dang, Michael, that was a great circle back around what we were talking about. Like, <laughs> I'm impressed. You you brought a random tangent that we we're going down, and that worked perfectly. So that is awesome. And I, I think you're right. That's a great example of sacrificial leadership. And a lot of what's wrong with what a lot of people do is that's not the way they think. They they don't go that direction. They're they're not willing to bring up everybody else around them. Just kind of thinking what you just said, Andrew, is as a leader, we're not really meant to take advantage of those we're really meant to take care of, but really more have that self-sacrifice to see them succeed. So essentially, we, we don't want to be that person that I talked about earlier who works hard to undercut those around them to get ahead, but rather be the one who can self-sacrifice to see those around him succeed, which in turn also will allow you to flourish because people will like you and you have that sociable aspect of, of really being able to communicate with your coworkers. And part of that is that self-sacrifice. That's great. That is a great tip. I think what's cool about it is what you've said there, it holds water across the board. Leaders that are humble, leaders that are self-sacrificial, leaders that are authentic, leaders that challenge you. Again, all of these characteristics of what Jesus did with his disciples, those are the leaders you want regardless of what your background is. And so I, that's something that is always interesting for me. That's something that I, I a lot of times try to look at and see like where where does the Bible sort of intersect with things that are non-biblical? I think that's always an intriguing thing to take a look at. And from from everything that I've found and everything that I've experienced, this is one of those things where, all right, buckle up, Andrew. We're gonna make a we're gonna make a pun here. You can take what Michael said as gospel. This is a podcast, not some peanut gallery circus. It's not a pun cast. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I hate both of you. <laughs> There's a lot of value in both what y'all are saying, despite the puns. <laughs> Okay, then let me throw you something that I had lined up for you, Michael, because I wanted to ask you this, and I'm afraid that we'll keep going down rabbit holes of great content, but I won't get to ask my question that I wanted. So you, on a day-to-day basis, is there anything that you're doing that you're they're using yourself to get grounded or refocusing, or is there any kind of daily habits that you've built that help you live this life? Because a lot of us find structure in our jobs, right? Not that I've had one for a while. Most people find structure in doing work. So does, have you built in structure or habits like that? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And first, I just want to say having structure can be a very, very good thing. And you can make that structure very good by having maybe morning habits or evening habits that help refresh you or have habits within the work itself, whether it's a, maybe a lunch exercise where you spend that time interacting with a coworker from 10 to 1030, you, you set a time apart, but having those habits really, really are valuable. Just thinking for me, my I don't really have really intense habits of 630, I wake up and I go on a five mile jog and I eat this for breakfast. I don't, I don't have really, very super specifics about that. But for habits for myself, I really think of just taking care of Peter my son. I am in charge of the morning duties right now because I don't have a job. So I get a chance to really be the one to wake up with him in the morning, feed him, change him, get him ready for his daycare. And then I'm the one who picks him up from school when he's done with his daycare. And I set the doctor appointments and it's, it's, it's a great responsibility to have because I get a chance to like kind of take that load off of my wife and, and take it on myself while I have that time. And so for me, it's my daily habits change. When I get a, a new job, it, it may not be this exact 
same taking care of Peter ritual that I have. It'll probably be split a little bit more between me and Amy, or Amy and me. But it's right now my daily habit habit is really just taking care of Peter. Things I've done in the past, though, I've, I've thought about this is one thing that I used to do every morning, I'd wake up and I'd write down three to five things I was thankful for. And it could be something as simple as I would wake up and I didn't want to get out of bed. So I would say, I'm thankful for the covers in my bed that keep me warm. And it could be something as, right, it's something simple. It could be something grand, like I'm thankful for my parents. So it can be, be anything, but I haven't done that in a while, but that is something I have done in the past whenever I feel like my my gratitude or my positivity is slipping a little bit. I may not be as in the right mindset, just maybe mentally checked out or, or maybe just have kind of a slightly feeling a little, a little sad or depressed. Like I will write things down that I'm grateful for. And it trains your brain to really think of things that excite you. Think of things that make you, make you happy and, and, and you, you are grateful for. So I think for me, the daily habits are taking care of Peter. And then whenever I'm, I'm feeling a little down, it's, it's writing things I'm thankful for to, to put me back in the right mindset. That's cool. We are big fans about gratitude on here. So that's that's awesome. I've never heard of it necessarily being used as like a, a use as needed kind of thing, but I could see that totally working, um, especially if you've trained yourself to be like, hey, I'm off kilter. I need to go do gratitude. So that makes sense. I like it. All right, Michael. So I know that memory is not your strong suit. This is normally the part of the podcast where we say, hey, Michael, tell us some stories about fun things that we did together the first time you met Andrew and I. So instead of doing that, we're going to play a game called, hey, Michael, do you remember that time? <laughs> so I'll, okay. I'll start out, Andrew, you can you can be thinking of yours, but I'm going to I'm going to throw it back a little bit. We have a ton of stories, a ton of stuff we've done together. I think we've lived together for several years. And we we even we went to middle school together. We weren't super close then, went to high school together, weren't super close then. So I want to see, do you remember the time at least that kind of stands out to me is one of the first moments where you and I like really hung out. We got to bond a little bit. It was at AM. Let me know if it's starting to ring any bells. Keep going with the clues. <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a football game and we were supposed to be going. It was supposed to be me, you and Nathan because you and Nathan went to church together and we're definitely a lot closer. And so the three of us were going to go watch AM play Oklahoma State. And then last minute, Nathan didn't feel good and he bailed. And so it ended up just being you and I at this game together, just the two of us watching the game. And that was like one of the very first times, I think it was just you and I hanging out and we like talked a long time and I'm going to say became friends. Oh, okay. <laughs> Michael's like, I don't remember I this. <laughs> blink, I was going to ask, blink. did our conversation, <laughs> yeah, right. Did our conversation go well? Did we become friends after this? No, that's, that's, as a memory, I actually do remember. <laughs> I remember our friend then, who was kind of the, the middle man between you and me, having, having to, to not, not be able to go to the game. But you know what? I love football. I know you enjoy football. And so we went to go watch it. And hey, that, that could have, Nathan could have been the catalyst to you and I becoming such great friends that we end up being roommates together. So thank you, Nathan, for being sick. Shout out, Nathan. In 10 years, he's going to be like, wait, those guys had a podcast? <laughs> he's going to be listening. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of anything. So this isn't right for, for my end, but honestly, my first like real real story was wandering around at, what was it called? We went to San Antonio for that Comic-Con. PAX. Oh, no, PAX. Right. Yeah, that's... And I know we did other things, but like I'm with Michael on this where my memory is not great. <laughs> so at least for this kind of thing. So I, don't, I remember that was a, an interesting experience. I remember Michael being pretty, and maybe I'm misremembering, but I remember you being a little bit overwhelmed by just how nerdy it was. I did not know what I was getting myself into. That's kind of, you You look shell-shocked <laughs> if I remember right. Like when we rolled in and we were wandering around, you're just like, what the hell? Why am I here? Oh, yes. and. So, Andrew, were you were you part of when we went to the Renaissance Fair as well? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, that was uh, that was another time. I did not know what I was getting myself into. And everybody was yelling at us about where our women were. 
<laughs> I yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> we were a big group of guys and we were made fun of constantly at Renaissance Fair, which I think if you're being made fun of at Renaissance Fair, then you've hit a pretty low. No, you've hit a high, man. That's <laughs> oh, okay. That's like a that means you've made it. Pretty sure. <laughs> no, what it what it means is that we were a bunch of bros like wearing polos and tank tops in the middle of Renaissance Festival where you're supposed to wear like leather boots and I don't know a blouse and a cutlass or something a cutlass that would have been great I don't know if I want to see you with one of those Mr. Peacemaker <laughs> I don't want to know how you make peace <laughs> that's right if they do not exist there is peace <laughs> Michael what about you do you have any anything you want to embarrass Daniel with because I've never done anything embarrassing so this is definitely a one-way street towards Daniel. One-way street with Daniel. I was thinking, Andrew, so not not about Daniel, but I was thinking I don't like where that. this is going. <laughs> <laughs> Turn it back to you. So I think our first memory for me is before Renaissance Fair, before PAX, we took a, a trip to Denver, and that's where we have an affectionate name of a group of guys called Jim where we get together. And that's that's where it all began was these adventures of the gym men all began in Denver. I won't go into too much specifics, but I do remember that that's, that's, that's to me, that's our first memory of, of really getting a chance to go mountain biking down a ski resort. We went down Copper Mountain during the summer when there was no snow. It was just absolutely terrifying for the record, <laughs> terrifying, but one of the most fun experiences. And so I recommend it to anyone who, who may be listening that if you get a chance, you can buy ski lift tickets for about $10 during the summer when there's no snow and you just rent a bike for like $30. And for $40, you have a whole day of adventure where they take you up to the top of the mountain and you just get to do the fun part. Drive your bike down the, the windy lanes. You don't even have to pedal half the time because it's downhill. And then when you're done, Any get of back the on the ski lift, <laughs> go back up. That is fair. It is a very low, like, cardio kind of thing going on. Because we went mountain biking another time, and I was like, wow, mountain biking is a lot of work when there's not a ski lift involved. <laughs> but also, you're a lot more willing to go really down fast the hill because you work so hard to get there. The ski lift, I was just like, I don't like this. This is... We're like hauling butt down this hill and I haven't ridden a bike in five years. Yeah, there's a high chance of risk, a high chance to, to, to get hurt. I think we, we had a few few falls when we were going downhill down the windy, windy roads. Yeah, it was a fun time though. That was pretty cool. I miss Denver. I like that city. Oh, speaking of, since since we aren't going to embarrass Daniel, of the cities you've lived in, you're, you've had Dallas, y'all were in San Diego, right? Diego? Not San Diego. I was closer to San Francisco. I was in the Bay Area. Oh, I'm just dumb at California. I'm Texan. Uh, I was in Northern California, not Southern. You were also in Denver and mm -hmm. you've lived some places. So what, what city has been your favorite? Sure. Let me, so I'm going to list out the places I've lived. I've lived in College Station. I've lived in Colorado Springs, Denver, Amarillo, Duncanville, Texas, Carrollton, Texas, Dallas. I've lived in San Jose, California, which is close to San Francisco. And so out of all of those places I've lived, I really have to say that Denver is my favorite. I just, I love the outdoors. I love getting a chance to go mountain biking or climbing a mountain, going hiking as well. Those are just my favorite things. In fact, one of my biggest injuries I've ever had was from living in Denver. I had a dream of doing 10 14ers in one summer. And essentially a 14er is a 14,000 foot mountain where a lot of times you have to start climbing at 4 or 5 a.m. because you want to spend the next 12 hours hiking up to the mountain, to the very top of the mountain, and you want to get off the top of the mountain before the storms roll in around 4 or 5 p.m. So you, you have to leave pretty early if you want to summit and make it back down in time. My goal is to do 10. I end up making it all the way through 8 of the 14ers. And on the eighth one, I ended up blowing out the IT band in my knee. And it took me longer. Usually it takes about eight hours to get up, four hours to get down. It took me eight hours to get up. And then it took me about 12 to 16 hours to get down, almost twice as long. And ended up going to a doctor and they said I could have surgery on my knee to, to fix it. Or I can just let it kind of grow and get better by itself. But either way, it's never going to be more than, he said, 50 to 80% of what it was. So I elected not to have surgery because I had no money at the time. Did not have health insurance at the time. So I was just going to let it heal on its own. 
And I don't know if that's the right decision because today I would say it's probably about 75% of what it used to be. So it's it's a bummer that I had such a, a bad tear in my IT band, but man, so close to getting 10. I got eight of them done. <laughs> Next time, we'll get you there. Next time. Okay. I'll have you carry me, Andrew. Hey, man. We just start doing some squats together. We can rehab our knees together. Oh, that's right. You've, you've got a few knee injuries as well. Yeah, I'm all good now. I'm just slow. Before we close this out, which I am very appreciative of you coming on, do you have a challenge for the people, the millions, I'm sorry, I almost said few, the millions of people who are listening? Yeah, I do. Thank you for that, Andrew. So I do have a challenge. I'm actually going to start it with one more Bible verse because that is what I try to guide my life by. This one is John 13, 14 through 15. And it is Jesus saying, and since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you have to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. So my challenge to you is, is to, to be as close to as Jesus's example as you can be. And when he washes his disciples feet, basically he's being this sacrificial leader that we, we need to be. So having that self-sacrificing for the greater good is something to always try and reach out for and, and try and try and be. So I think the challenge that I have for you is just first is don't let the stigma of being a sacrificial leader be a bad thing. We don't want it to be one where Oh, it's a, it's a leader that's not doing everything they can to gain power, but rather it's a leader that is trying to build up those around him and build up those who we are meant to care for. So think about that. Think about the aspects of sacrificing for someone else for the greater good and do your best to pursue that. Sweet. I like it. We'll see if you guys can follow up and keep strong on the sacrificial leadership challenge. Michael, thank you so much again for coming on. I really like the challenge and I hope everybody can give it a shot and try and do a little bit of sacrifice this week for people around you. So thank you everybody for tuning in and we look forward to connecting with you soon.